The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hey, everybody, this is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. Uh, I'm sponsored by the Manhattan Institute. I'm a professor at Brown University, uh, and I'm with Noam Dorman, my friend, my friend Noam Dorman, who is the owner of the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village in New York City uh, and a host of the podcast. It's what you call the Open Table. Live from the Table. Live from the Table, which is also uh, recorded, is it not, uh, uh, on the uh, uh, same premises as the uh, Comedy Cellar? Yeah, it used to actually be recorded at the table of the Comedy Cellar. And then during COVID, we ended up going upstairs to the like apartment studio up there. And we're still upstairs. Uh, we just got in the habit. But yes, on the premises. Noam is my friend. Uh, I have uh, actually been invited a couple of times to, quote, perform the Glenn Show at the Comedy <laughs> Cellar. John McWhorter and I actually did a, a tag team uh, show with some comics at the Comedy Cellar uh, not that long ago. So I, I hope to renew the acquaintance with the with the comedy club scene. But meanwhile, uh, we're here, uh, Noam and I. And uh, let me introduce this conversation by telling a story, if I may, Noam. And the story sure. is, the story is, October 7th happens, the attack and uh, Hamas attack on innocent uh, civilians in the south of Israel. War breaks out. Controversy ensues. University presidents are being forced out. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Uh, people are demanding a ceasefire, and other people are insisting that to demand a ceasefire is exactly the wrong thing to do, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Noam, who's Jewish, and I, who am a Black American, in the midst of all of this controversy, might not see exactly the same solution to every problem, might not look at and interpret the evidence in exactly the same way, might have different views about what should happen in the wake of this catastrophe. And uh, we're friends. And the question is, how do friends manage that kind of a situation? That's one question that arises. It's a question that has arisen for us. And the story I want to tell, I'll be brief. One day, Noam calls up and he says, uh, can I take you out to dinner? He lives in New York City. I live in Providence, Rhode Island. That's three hours, man. He says, let me take you and your lovely wife out to the best restaurant in town. Not in New York City, in Providence. He's got to drive up. He drives up with his wife and with Coleman Hughes and Coleman's uh, uh, fiance. And we go to what we think is a very fine restaurant. We sit for, I don't know, like four hours talking about everything under the sun, including uh, Israel Hamas. Uh, and Noam comes, not empty-handed, he comes with a bag full of books. <laughs> <laughs> books about, the, uh, about Zionism, books about Israel, about the War of Independence, about the conflict, about the two-state solution, the one-state solution, et cetera, et cetera, which he gifts me. He get, hands over the books. And he says, in effect, I hope you read them. I regard that as an act of friendship. And I'm working on it, man. There's a lot, there was a lot in that bag. I haven't gotten the whole thing yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> well, it is an act of friendship. It's, it's, it's more than an act of, well, it's an act of friendship. It's also, I hope you understood this, it's an act of confidence in you in the sense that I have such high regard for your intellect that. And you're, you know, I, I think I've told you before, you remind me of my father in that um, you're so fearless about seeing the truth, basically no matter where it leads and no matter how uncomfortable it might be. That's the way I've, I've always regarded you. And my, my, my father was exactly like that. So for somebody like that, to me, I'm not going to try to convince you uh, of certain arguments that I feel, whatever it is, because this is self-serving and, you know, it might convince you in some ways, but you'll, you'll never really be convinced that way. I, I, I feel like with somebody I have that much respect for, let them, 
read, and you know, and I didn't cherry pick just books from from one point of view. Nor, nor do I read books from just one point of view, right? As a matter of fact, by reading them from different points of view and seeing which ones fall short, you feel more confident in the conclusions you come to. So, so let me give these books to Glenn, and then cross my fingers and hope that it will lead him to the similar conclusions that it led me to. And if it doesn't, you know, I, I can live with that too. But that was, that was my hope. What about loyalty? What about if you're really my friend, you'd be with me on this one? This one is a gut level issue. This is an issue of survival for me. Uh, how can you call yourself my friend and not have my back? No, I think it's the opposite. Um, loyalty does not... Uh, I have a lot of issues with a lot of things that are called loyalty when they're used to preclude somebody from using logical and fair judgment about a matter. You, you, you don't owe me or any friend the conclusion. What you owe, you don't know this, I mean, what you could say you owe your friend, but you owe the universe is a fair-minded application of your intellect to the facts. And I, I would never expect more than that from anyone. Fair enough. Right? I mean, you agree with that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. What I'm recalling is uh, back in the 90s when Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein's book, The Bell Curve, was published, and they talk about intelligence. And in part of the book, they talk about race and intelligence, and it's very controversial. And well-informed people will know exactly what I'm talking about. Are Blacks intellectually inferior in terms of their genetic endowment? And they don't quite say that, although they say we don't know they say there's heredity and uh, environment involved, and they're agnostic as to the relative importance, but both of them count. And there was a firestorm of objection to the book, and I was on the critical side of that argument. And um, I was friendly with uh, some magazine editors, uh, Norman Podhoritz and Neil Kazadoy at Commentary Magazine, for example, where I had during the 80s and early 90s, published a number of pieces uh, that were, uh, in one degree or another, critical of civil rights establishment around uh, issues like affirmative action and so on. And I, I uh, went to the editors and I said, here, I, I want to write a critical review of uh, the, the Belk. Respectful, but critical. I don't agree with the conclusions. I think the book is dangerous. I want to uh, write a critical review. And they said, uh, we are not interested in publishing. Uh, yeah, that uh, people are piling on Charles, Charles Murray, and, you know, it's a very ideological and political kind of thing, and, and we just as soon take a pass. And I have to tell you, the first thought in my mind was, if they were coming for the Jews, you'd expect me to be with you. They're coming for the Blacks, quote-unquote, and here you are splitting hairs and, you know, whatever. Why don't you simply say, you don't have to agree with me, you, you'll uh, let me use your pages to voice my thoughts. You know, they have to be past muster. I mean, I can't just go out there and bash the guy, but I have arguments. I have evidence. I have thoughts. Uh, and and I, I frankly felt betrayed. I, I felt like you guys are kind of using me, I felt. And these are, where are my friends? I haven't talked to uh, either of them in a long time, but you know, I kind of felt like that. And I feel as I process the reaction to the way that I've been talking about the uh, conflict in Israel and Gaza, that some of my Jewish friends are kind of like saying that to me. They're saying, where are you, man? Where are you when we need you? And I'm having a hard time with that uh, because this is hard. This is this is not easy at all to know what is right. This is hard. Uh, I could make a testimony now about how horrific and how awful and how abys uh, disgusting and evil was the slaughter of those people in those kibbutzim. I could say that because I believe it's true. But please don't ask me for a loyalty test about something. I thought you were my friend. I thought you would have known from the outset that I believed that that was true. That doesn't uh, necessarily imply that I agree with you about what the IDF is doing uh, in the prosecution of this campaign. It doesn't. 
uh, doesn't imply that I agree with you about the Netanyahu government or I disagree with you about the Netanyahu government or whatever it is. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the uh, requirements of friendship don't require that we agree. The mutual respect of friendship should require that we allow for people to, to think their way through things and uh, not ask for loyalty tests along the way, this kind of thing. What do you think about uh, well, I, I'm quite disappointed to hear that that was the way uh, Norman Putharts and the rest of commentary acted. Because, In 1994, by the way, 30 years yeah. ago. Yeah, but, because, yeah. Um, I mean, c- listen, uh, emotional co-optation is very human. I, I deal with it, we struggle with it. If, uh, you know, if Coleman were to write something that I really disagreed with. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd take it public. I, I understand. But when you set yourself up to, to run Commentary Magazine and, and something as really quite serious as the bell curve, and, and people don't remember, but this was on the front page of the New Republic, and um, people believed this. Uh, the New York Times reviewed it, I think favorably. Um, Lisa didn't did dismiss it out of hand. Uh, it's their obligation to allow you. It's it's more important than whatever ruffled feathers Charles Murray might have. And I can add that you, much later, you had Charles Murray on the show, and you were, I thought, too solicitous of him, too respectful of him. I, I believe because you wanted to make sure that you you appeared to be, you know, uh, above it and objective. But I was quite offended by the stuff he wrote in his last book. But that's neither here nor there. I, I'm, I'm disappointed. Loyalty just doesn't require that. Loyalty does not require you to um, have an opinion because your friends are Jewish. Uh, that's just absurd. That, 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 that's just absurd. They, they should try like I try to persuade you. And, and, and if they can't, they can't. You know, I, I, had a, I have a, an analogy I've been using lately that um, makes me feel better about some of this stuff. I don't know how true it is, but it makes me feel better. From time to time, you see on the internet one of these optical illusions, like there's a picture and you can't tell if it's a left-hander or a right-hander, or you can't tell if the, drink, the, the dress is blue or purple or, or, or blue or pink. And it's exactly the same picture, right? But two different people see it. And they see something opposite and they cannot believe the other person. There's no way you see a left-hander. It's clearly a right-hander. And there's no way you see a right-hander. And some factual patterns are like this. In good faith, people will see the exact same facts. And one person sees a right-hander and one person sees a left-hander. And it's impossible to accept that the other opinion is in good faith. But it's got to be. If Glenn Lowry has an opinion 180 degrees of mine... I, I just have to accept that this is a good faith opinion that, because that's why you're my friend, because I feel that way about you. And sometimes people differ. I, I don't know, you know, I can't square the circle any better than that, but that's the way I feel. Uh, here at Brown University, um, shortly after the attack of October 7th, but before the uh, response had been uh, completely uh, orchestrated, um, some of my colleagues here circulated a letter calling for a ceasefire, sort of preemptively calling for a ceasefire because the fire hadn't really started in terms of the IDF response to Hamas. I signed that letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard from a lot of people about, you know, oh, Glenn, how could you do that? First of all, look who else signed the letter. And the other signatories, many of them, were very predictable anti-Zionist types in my anthropology department or my Middle East Studies Center or whatever, who uh, were uh, uh, signatories to the letter. I was, in effect, joining them. Omer Bartov, the uh, historian, the Israeli historian, who's my colleague here in genocide and Holocaust studies in the history department, signed, which I thought, well, I said, if he signed, maybe it's okay for me to sign. But the questions that came, questions from students, you know, don't you know that you're playing right into the hands? You're a useful idiot, is what they were saying in so many words. They didn't call me an idiot. They respect me. But they were saying you're playing into the hands of this uh, genocidal, uh, uh, cultish, uh, 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 Jew-hating movement, uh, which is Hamas. You know anything about them? You know their Hitlerian origins? You know about the Muslim Brotherhood? You know? Do you know? Don't you know? 
if they had the ability to kill every Jew in uh, Israel-Palestine, they would do it tomorrow. Only thing stopping them is that they don't have the weapons yet. You know? And uh, I was shaken by some of, of this response. People, I thought Glenn was a morally serious person. Now he exposes himself. And, and I'll confess, I didn't think it all the way through. I didn't have the benefit of those books that you dumped on me to help me figure out what I sh- might want to actually say at the end of the day about something that's difficult. But I anticipated the awful slaughter that has ensued, and I wanted to act if it could be avoided, if there's some way around this, to, to voice my uh, uh, hope. Yeah, hope. You know, um, I actually wrote a little piece about this I, uh, for my uh, newsletter at Substack. I said, you know, there's the logic of necessity and then there's the logic of moral accountability. And the logic of necessity might say, there's an enemy at my door, I have to kill him. The moral uh, responsibility might say, yeah, but I'm killing him. I'm killing his wife and kids. I'm killing, you know, I'm killing, you know, can I, am I going to kill all of them? You know, and uh, I was caught on the horns of a dilemma to a certain extent. And perhaps in a moment of weakness, I signed this letter. Uh, Glenn, don't, don't beat yourself up about it. I mean, listen, um, I, I think I might have felt the same thing that, you know, Glenn, don't, don't make bedfellows with those people because they are not um, coming to this letter for the reasons that you are I, I, signing some anything that says ceasefire sounds so righteous and and humane. It's hard to say. I'm not signing a letter for ceasefire. It's like you say, what you want the killing to continue. You know these open letters often have agendas, but you know that's just a signature. <clears throat> Anyone who's listened and read uh, the things that you've been writing and saying sees that you're struggling with this. I, um, I haven't seen anything that you've said that I thought was, um, I, you know, over the, even close to over the line. I mean, I, I listen, this is an issue which some people know, you know, like the back of their hand, they've, they've grown up, they've grown up with it and they, that's not always a good thing. They might have be so close to it. They can't even see the truth of the matter. And, and, you're, and you've, you've always been outspoken saying that you consider yourself to be mildly informed about this. I don't know, Glenn. I, I, I sense that you, you're feeling really bad and pressured by the reaction that you've gotten from some of your Jewish friends. But I would tell you, don't be, Glenn. Listen, I've gotten, I got some very, very negative remarks from some prominent Jewish people because I had the nerve to want to interview Norman Finkelstein and Aaron Mate. And uh, I was really annoyed by that. And they came at me pretty hard and they know, like you might be suspect. I'm not suspect of where I am on this issue. But even the fact that I would give these people a chance to say their side of it uh, really ruffled people's feathers. So you're dealing with, with with real sensitivity here, as you know, you can imagine. Like it, this was like a a, a a nationally televised lynching of Jewish people, and very shortly after that, everybody you know everybody's so sensitive. Not that many people can put all these things in, in perspective. I, you know, I would give everybody a pass. I'd give you a pass, and I'd also give the people who were impatient with you a pass. Let's see how see how the dust settles. I want to say for the record uh, that I saw two issues. One of them is you're a host, you invite people. You reveal a little something by who you invite. If you only invite Norman Finkelstein or Omar Bartov or John Mearsheimer uh, or uh, uh, Robert Wright or, you know, whatever people, who all of whom are critical of Israel, uh, that tells us something about you. Uh, and you need to be more balanced. To which I respond, fair enough. I'm working on it. You know, uh, I, I, it's not a litmus test. I got to have this one tit for tat, tit for tat, but fair enough. Give me, a, give me a chance. I'm working on it. I consider this conversation to be a part of that process, to be honest with you. Yeah, but uh, uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just said I see two issues. One of them is who you invite on the show. The other is a loyalty test. It's about where do you stand? You know, as a host of a show, 
the idea that you would invite people from uh, around the spectrum is, I think, generally speaking, a good thing. Uh, the, the loyalty test bit, the fact that uh, I haven't heard you strongly articulate your support for the position that I think is the correct position, I think is unreasonable. I, I think it's unreasonable to ask me to come to a conclusion other than the one that I actually come to based upon my review of what's going on. So uh, I'm just drawing a distinction between those two things. It is unreasonable, Glenn. And look, and I'm even open to, listen, I have, um, I, started, I told you off, Mike, I, ha- I have long and deep relationships. My, fa- my father um, was a musician and he had a band which had, which played Arabic and Israeli music. This is how I, I grew up. So, and, um, you know, there was a guy, Ali Hafid, who was a Dumbek player who was like, a, you know, our closest friend growing up. And he, and he hated Israel, you know, and this was, and then we had other employees. I started to tell you who, um, it was a manager, Hassan, who also despised Israel. He thought the Jews would spend eternity one inch, one mile from the sun burning in hell. And yet he was totally devoted to, to my father and to me. Um, so I, I always knew, and it was just, it, it was, I never knew otherwise that people close to me could have these culturally predictable views about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And, and you just had to let that go and try to avoid it. And sometimes it'd be heated arguments, but from there through their eyes, us Jews were no less guilty of the of the culturally predictable argument than they were, right? And um, and by the way, I still question myself all the time. What are the odds that I happen to be born, you know, a, a Jew in New York, and I happen to have these views that every Jew in New York, you know, is likely to have? You know, what are those odds? But of course, on the other hand, some view is likely correct. So, you know, why can't, maybe I just, maybe I just got lucky, but I'm sure to some extent I miss things and, you know, uh, people will say, well, Glenn's, Glenn's a, a black guy. And to some extent it's culturally, uh, predictable that even somebody like Glenn Lowry, and I, and I would say, because in my opinion, you tell me if I'm wrong, I think people will get, will shortchange you. They will, they will assume that because you take a uh, conservative uh, position, so to speak, on race issues, that you're somehow less, that you bleed less black blood, as it were, that, that you are somehow less emotionally attached to your people, their cause, their struggle, and, and what they've been through. I think that's 100% not the truth. And um, That's correct. You asked me yeah. to tell you if you were wrong, you're not yeah. wrong. That, that's yeah. correct. And I, th- I think that runs very deep in you. And so it could be, God forbid, that part of the seeing the Palestinians as the oppressed in this story does move you in some way because of who you are as, as, a, as a black guy. You know what? I, everybody comes from somewhere, right? Maybe, maybe that is, and maybe that's a good thing. I don't like, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe, maybe that gives you an insight or maybe it makes you jump to a conclusion or who the hell knows we, you know, but this is all valid. And it's, uh, and, and that, and that may be totally unfair to you. What I just said, I'm just saying uh, it's not, we all wonder what's going on behind the eyes of people we disagree with. And there are psychological aspects and there are, uh, uh, intellectual aspects, whatever. And that's what makes us people. And I find that interesting, but the fundamental truth of of who you are as Glenn Lowry is so overwhelmingly clear to me that that's what I have to lean on. And then I explore with you as my friend, well, where are you coming from on this? Maybe I, you know, maybe whatever. It, it It's very healthy. So let me say one more thing if you don't. So, so I have one sure. very good friend who's um, Arabic-Israeli. <clears throat> And he's very loyal to um, uh, Palestinian people. And uh, he was very close to my father as well. He told us stories years ago about mis- the mistreatment that he suffered as an, as an Israeli citizen at the hands of Israeli police and stuff that opened my eyes, opened my father's eyes to um, bad treatment there. Um, and when this happened, 
and and by the way, as as many Palestinians I know are, he's he's quite cynical of the the Palestinian leadership, Hamas, the corruption. You know, he's not he, he's to the to the right on certain issues as opposed to some like liberal white Jews uh, are. You know, because he 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 has hatred or resentment of both sides. Um, but when he sees a couple of days after this began, he left me a WhatsApp message and he started to talk to me about what he was, and he just burst inconsolable, just sobbing. And I have this, I have this recording of him just, he couldn't, he could not contain wow. himself. It's a very close friend of mine. You know, I saw him recently for the first time. Um, so what was going on there? This was the deepest reverberation human as it can be that, that in his soul with seeing his people dying, you know, and this, and this it reminds me of what you wrote about the humanity of it. You know, there, there, there is that level. Now, what am I supposed to say as his friend? How dare you take the side of the, 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 the things that people are saying to you, the, the Arabs and the, don't you know, they'd kill every Jew, whatever it is. I, I that, that, that's just not, the right response for me. My response is to understand, as you put it, the humanity of what's going on here is why it makes it such a difficult issue. There's no, there's, these are impossible questions, Glenn, but you have, you have to trust your friends in some way. You have to. One of the books you, um, uh, gave me was by Benny Morris, the historian, um, one state, two state, in which he reviews the history of the movements for uh, both one state and two state solutions going back before even 1947, 48 in uh, Israel and uh, the Jewish and uh, Arab populations. And as I read him, he comes to the conclusion that uh, the uh, two-state solution is not a viable option because there's never been a partner on the other side that was willing to compromise with uh, Israel about it. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, as the cliche goes. Yeah. Um, I had Omar Bartov, the Israeli historian, who's a man of the left uh, and is very critical of Israel and not just the government, but to some degree, I took it critical of the, um, critical of the settler movement, critical of Israel's lack of interest, as he puts it, in a two-state solution. So, you know, you have these different sides. I'm sitting here thinking, and I wonder what you think. There is no alternative to a two-state solution here. No decent alternative. Either uh, you have one person, one vote, in the uh, all in the affected territory, which means the end of a Jewish state. Or you have uh, a never-ending uh, situation in which some of the people who are residing in the area over which the state of Israel has control don't have full political rights. Uh, neither of those are decent outcomes, I would say. And I, I wonder if you think I've got that wrong. No, I, I think you have it 100% right. <clears throat> there is no solution other than a two-state solution. I I do line up with the side that feels that the Palestinians um, don't want a two-state solution. When I say the Palestinians don't want, I mean that a critical mass enough to effectuate an actual two-state solution that can live up to its obligations, uh, which would, of course, mean... Um, not having malicious firing rockets into Israel and not using um, that, that a critical mass for that doesn't exist. I actually um, believe that nonviolence would be enough, convincing nonviolence would be enough to get 70%, if not more, of the Israeli people to agree to a two state solution. People, I think misunderstand that much of Israeli opposition to two-state solution is not the idea that they don't want two states, is that they feel that this, the second state would become, like Gaza today, a launching ground for um, 
more terror and more death. I I happen to believe that you know if if you if you really understand where Netanyahu is coming from and his Jabotinsky philosophy, you know this famous conservative Israeli philosophy. He wrote this essay, The Iron Wall, which was that only once the Palestinians agree that there is no alternative will they agree to two states, will they agree to peace. I, I think we're seeing that borne out by Hamas's rhetoric, by Hamas's actions. The, uh, I mean, I'm talking a long time now. I, this is, it, it's, the most in, it's the most important of issues because, you know, if you, if you, if you, I tried to read every scrap of paper and read every interview and then interview myself, every person involved in the peace process in the 2000s and then through 2007. And then, sorry about that. And then even in 2014 during Obama. And I became more convinced than ever that there was no possibility for two states then. And I think it continues to now. And I'll tell you something, you know, if you look at the history right afterwards, the argument was they never offered a contiguous state. It was cantons. It was this. It was that. Right. And if you notice, those arguments have kind of faded away by now. You really don't hear that anymore. They couldn't be backed up. So what you hear now is, well, that was a long time ago. You can't say this forever. So they disagree with it, disagree with it until they decided it expired. And then they kind of concede it, but say it's it's no longer relevant. But the um, the, the bottom line is that what happened in 2001, where in the face of what was no doubt an Israeli government that wanted to make peace, was desperate to make peace. Barack was ready to, to sacrifice his prime ministership, as was Olmert, to give, to give a, a, a sovereignty on the Temple Mount and basically any, anything that could be given. Uh, the settlements, interestingly, were not the, the, the sticking point. Um, that was answered with the Second Intifada which, as I've said before, is a kind of a slow rolling over a number of years version of October 7th, about the same number of civilian casualties, same kind of atrocities, which, in my mind, is a good control experiment of what we're talking about. Yes, you can say this is all Netanyahu's policies, but then that would imply that, well, when the policies were the opposite, that they would have been ready to make peace, but they weren't. And, you know, that's how I feel about it. And I'm, I'm always on the lookout for some argument or some fact to prove that wrong. And then in which case I would become an advocate for whatever policy would make sense, because I agree with you, two states is what it has to be. But my God, if you listen to, as just a couple of weeks ago, the, the interviews of the Hamas leadership, they're like, no. It's fine if they want to go to 67 borders, but we're, we're not going to agree that that's the end of the conflict. We, we believe it's from the river to the sea and from the north to the south. You know, they, they, he was very specific about it. And we know that Hamas, if there was an election tomorrow, might very well win in the West Bank as well. So some solutions, some problems don't have any solutions right now, I don't think. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, within that, I don't know is a continuation of the status quo. And uh, yeah, I don't know what na name we want to give it. You want to call it apartheid? I mean, we, what are no, we going to no. call it? What, what are we going to call? I, I, I wouldn't call it apartheid. And this is where, you know, apartheid, genocide, these, are, these words are not helpful in my opinion. Okay. They're, con they're conclusory. I mean, you, you, they're conclusory and they're meant to, uh, to draw uh, mental uh, pictures of the worst atrocities in uh, history. If, if, if there is no solution, then it can't be apartheid because apartheid had an obvious solution, you know? And, and if that's just, the, just the way I say it. They're, okay. They're, I said that. I wasn't trying, yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to call it that. I was just trying yeah. to characterize yeah. the tragic implications of the fact that yeah. two states doesn't work if you don't have a partner who's willing to make peace. And the fact that the mentality not only of the Hamas uh, uh, organization, but of uh, many of the people who are living in the affected territories is inconsistent with making peace. And what does that imply going forward? We can call it what you, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It ain't a pretty picture, whatever no. you call it. No, it's, 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 um, it's horrible. It's, uh, it's occupation. I mean, 
look, first of all, I, I, I didn't mean to bristle at the, the, the apartheid thing. I, it's, it's fine. You know, Benny Morris signed a letter that called it apartheid uh, on the West Bank. So, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it wasn't out of balance for him. I, I questioned him about it a little bit, but anyway, but, yeah. uh, I, I, I don't know. And I mean, all I can say is that, and some people might say this is a, a bigoted point of view, but if you were to look at the way the internecine, is that the word? Like the tribal conflicts throughout every Muslim country in the world, this is nothing. Yeah. You know, this is, this is, this is a, a, a low on the list of, forgive me, because again, I, 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 when I say forgive me, I really mean it. Because I don't want to cast a broad brush, and I understand that as you zoom in, more and more details become visible and they're important. But in a very, very broad brush, in that entire part of the world, I've always said, well, if you see all that bloodshed, a million people here, 500,000 people here, you know, this is, again, what does it take to think that, oh, but... With the Jews, that's that's the one tribe that we ought to be expecting, you know, that to put all, put it all behind them and, and live side by side. Well, that to me is like, you know, why why would why would you expect that? It's just not the way it goes in that part of the world. They they don't the Sunnis kill the Shiites, the Shiites kill the Sunnis, and I, and I could go on and on about conflicts I don't know very much about, and the and the casualties are in the hundreds of thousands, and the world kind of takes it in stride. And doesn't demand a solution. And doesn't demand a solution. So, you know, having said that, uh, I, don't get me wrong. There's no question that people of any stripe are not angels and they have ugly human nature and they're fueled by rage. And I don't doubt that there's one person I wouldn't want to trade places with in the world. It's a Palestinian Arab living in the West Bank or, or God forbid, Gaza. I don't, and, and I know that if I were in their shoes, I would hate the Israeli soldier with his boot on my neck figuratively. And I know that he would treat me with chauvinism and at, at times uh, brutally. We can't even keep our own cops from doing that, right? Among our own people. And this is a military occupation fueled by terrorism. And, you know, it's a horrible, horrible recipe. It's horrible. Why expect more of the Jews than you would expect of the Sunni or the Shia Arabs who are killing each other? Persians yeah, and so well, I, I hope we do get better from them than we get. But there's still. Well, I was going to uh, say yeah, the reason yeah. that we expect more is because we're part of the same civilization. And, yeah. and we see ourselves in you to a certain degree if I can say that as a black American. And, you know, we, we don't necessarily expect to be able to convince the Ayatollahs or anything, but we, we think we might be able to convince you of something. Yeah, but, I, but I, I do think you see, so for instance, it's, you know, you know I, I was thinking today, a lot of arguments, when they get too many times, said too many times for some reason, they become cliches and they lose their persuasive power, even though, despite how simple they are, they're, they're quite important. Sinwar was a prisoner in Israel, dying of brain cancer. And Israel knew who he was. He was the butcher of Khan Yunus. And they brought him to the hospital and gave him life-saving cancer treatment, right? And then they released him and he went on to do this. So yes, we do get a huge amounts, help, huge helpings of much better treatment than you'd expect from uh, other people. But you're never going to expect, you can't expect them to be more than human. And humans have an ugly side, you know, especially humans in uniforms. We know this. We know this. Especially humans that might have lost their loved ones in a war. You have noticed, I'm sure, yeah. that Biden is taking a lot of flack uh, from the left of his party about his position in support of Israel in this conflict. A lot of flat. Yep. It could cost him the election. Yeah. What do you make of that? Well, don't say anything bad about my president, Glenn. <laughs> 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 um, I didn't say anything. I just... 
I, I am actually bothered that some conservative Jewish friends of mine that I know are trying to find something he said there, something he did there, some compromise he might have made there, some good cop, bad cop he might be playing to yeah. find fault with this man because of their partisan leanings when every Jewish person who cares about this conflict should be thanking God for President Biden, who, who seems to me to be taking a position uh, because he believes it. And he's, um, I'm sure he's looking at the clock and saying he has some time to adjust and hoping that he'll be able to turn it around. And, and maybe there's some calculation that the alternative would also be uh, electorally difficult for him. But, but my gut on him is that he actually feels that he's doing the right thing. And I, I made another point another day that, that, I, that I also believe if Trump were president now, I think Trump would be also have many of the same policies. There'd be a fight now on the Democratic side uh, to elect a new candidate. And anti-Israel would be front and center in that fight. And many people, many Democrats who are now staying in line because the tendency is to back your president. They might be uncomfortable with Biden and Israel, but they're not going to come out and publicly blast him. Even AOC is kind of double talking around this issue with Biden. If there were a presidential election going on, a primary election on the, in the Democratic Party right now, we'd be seeing out in the open, terrible anti-Israel point of view, and there'd be, a, there'd be an openly anti-Israel candidate who could potentially win. So we should thank our lucky stars, in my opinion, that Biden is president, and thank our lucky stars for people who feel this way, that he's taking these hits and doing what he thinks is right, and I'm not going to look to find fault with him on this. I, I, th I think that's ungracious, ingracious, whatever the word is. Is there any information in the fact that certain elements in the party and not just racial minorities, young voters and so on, are fueling this Israel critical reaction to Biden? Uh, looking to the future of the American political response to this. Is, is there anything to learn from the reactions of some people who are not all uh, idiots? Uh, some of them are thoughtful people who have come to different conclusions about this uh, matter. Uh, I'm, I'm here on the campus. I, I just had a class discussion the other day in my course on race and inequality. I like to start out talking about self-censorship, you know, about how do you discuss sensitive issues and how do you feel safe to tell what you really think, even if it's an unpopular opinion in, in mixed company. And uh, we got to talking about um, the uh, demonstrations and uh, con controversies and whatnot here on campus, kids sitting in at the president's office demanding that the university back a ceasefire, she demurring. Uh, one of our students gets shot up in uh, Vermont somewhere uh, as a Palestinian kid. He was wearing a head wrap, and uh, the, the assumption was that he had been attacked because of his identity, and there was a big brouhaha on campus. And she had a, a vigil to, you know, uh, acknowledge the event, and she was shouted down by students who were, you know, their demand. She's got blood on her hands because she won't divest of Raytheon, which is supplying weapons to the U.S. Defense Department, which is supplying what, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I was just really interested in, I can't get them to talk about race. I can't, I can't get them to talk about Black Lives Matter or affirmative action, but I can, they, they were at each other on this one. Um, and I, I'm just, uh, what, what am I trying to ask? I'm, I'm asking, is the future uh, secure from your point of view, given these emanations from people who you can't just write off as, uh, as, uh, idiots or a, a puppet, some, some, you know, Nancy Pelosi made this comment the other day. I don't know if you saw it where she said that she wanted to look into where the funding was coming from some of the pro Palestinian organizations because they were doing Putin's Handywood oh, for, yeah, I mean, something really idiotic in my opinion, uh, like that. 
trying trying to discredit these people uh, as being insincere or or being uh, uh, you know uh, cat's paw kind of tools of of dark forces when in fact they're expressing sentiments that are if right or wrong perfectly understandable and and to some degree defensible. Well, I mean, I I know that you and I have had issue with this whole worldview intersectionality uh, um, f- for a long time. And I think that you and I have both been nervous about the consequences of this for the United States of America in terms of, uh, you know, dividing up the world into oppressed and oppressors and hyper concern about race and um, inability to put anything in the past within any kind of historical context. Um, And this all makes the Arab-Israeli conflict axiomatic. And um, you'd like to think it would be uh, affectable by facts. And many of these people really don't know the facts. I even had Aaron Mate on, who who is a friend i've become a friend a friend of mine so i don't mean to bash him but he's a you know he's a very very well-known spokesman for the pro-palestinian side and i and and i said well aaron do you know how it is that um the west bank became occupied and he he didn't know he thought that jordan had attacked he thought that israel had attacked jordan but actually is jordan attacked israel it's a very fundamental fact because if you know that israel took the west bank in a defensive war rather than as an act of aggression it bears on the situation. So these kids, many of them are Jewish, by the way, they don't know the first thing about the facts. But having said that, if that worldview persists, the facts don't matter because all that matters is the the DNA involved and the history associated with that DNA. So yeah, I'm very nervous about it. I mean, I'll confess something else. I don't know how... Uh, immigration affects all that. Dennis Ross had written this in one of his books many, many years ago already that um, he he suspected that as more and more people come from, I don't know what the polite term is anymore, the developing world, the third world, whatever it is, they would bring with them their, natu- their, their traditional third world beliefs about, and that would have, and that would sway the government. So all of which is say, yes, I'm very, very nervous. Uh, all the more reason that the um, two-state solution is urgent. Maybe this burns out. Maybe the pendulum swings to a more reasonable place. Maybe we're already seeing that a little bit. Maybe Twitter isn't real life. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a, there are much bigger silent minorities on campuses than the university presidents realize. I, I, I don't really know, but I know, I do know one thing. If you look at those opinion polls, like people like me and my generation, we grew up feeling there's really no anti-Semitism around. And if you look at those opinion polls that show people like 55 and over, there really is like 5%, 6% of people who, who are not supportive of Israel or, or have attitudes about Jews, a tiny percentage. And when you get down to 20, 25-year-olds, it's a majority. I think 40% are not even sure the Holocaust happened or things like this. So this is an ugly cauldron of beliefs and ideology, I don't know. I don't want to be alarmist. You know, Tyler Cowen said something very interesting one time. He said, we always underestimate regression to the mean. In some way, we're seeing a regression to the mean on attitudes about Jews. I'm not predicting a Holocaust, but a regression to the mean. I was going to say okay, intersectionality, that is this ideology of uh, racial supremacy, domination, white supremacy, European colonial domination of peoples of color. And we're all in the same boat here. Pe- we peoples of color are in one way or another tied together by, in virtue of our being subject to this domination, that ideology as an account for why a lot of the kids in my classroom are saying, uh, what they're saying about this conflict. They're, they're critical of Israel. Many of them are Jewish, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's one story. 
Uh, but the other story is buildings collapsing on uh, on families and you, you're pulling infants out of the rubble. And there's just only so much of that you can take before you start saying, fuck no. Absolutely. And you don't have to be an anti-Semite to get there, is what I'm saying. And so, I mean, this, I'm, this is me now. This is just my opinion. There are such things as tragedies in history where there isn't any really good outcome. This looks like one of them. You say, we got to root out Hamas. How's that going? Uh, I mean, you know, sure, they've been disrupted. They've been dislocated. Tunnels have been, you know, destroyed and whatnot. But there's an idea there. How do you root that idea out? Uh, you, you don't do it by killing your kids. Well, I I don't know. I I don't don't get me wrong. I'm not. Listen, Glenn. This is very, it's very complex. It's complex for a, a number of reasons that that you know. Every, that of course, you know these things, but it's always worth to worthwhile to bring them up. First of all, which is that the strategy of Hamas is to have their children die. We know this, they've said as much. And to stand down in the face of that strategy is to normalize and to allow that strategy to become victorious and then used perhaps even with more effectiveness in the future by Hezbollah, by, by who, who, whoever uses it. So it doesn't give Israel a pass. It doesn't, it doesn't wipe the blood off their hands if it's not necessary to do this. But it, is, it does bother me the, the little extent to which this blood is put at the, on, the, on the hands of the people who intend it. And I, and I said, I might have been written to you, if the Lord came down and transplanted all the Gazan civilians to some corner that was, you know, completely uh, of no strategic importance. Israel would click their heels and then just have their way with Hamas. And Hamas would immediately try to devise strategies to suck those civilians back into the fray. So what I, what I think, where, where I would say that you and I agree is that the gravity of what's going on requires morally that the, that there really be no other option for Israel to follow it ha they, 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 it has to be no fucking choice but to do this Israel has the right to to concern itself with its future they, they, they have the right to say you know what if we if we allow this now they're going to declare victory and 10 years from now it'll be a dirty bomb we, we, they don't have to do that but if there is another strategy and other ways to do it, that is what they need to do. And, and then I ref refer you to the fact that it wasn't that long ago when I'm sure, you know, more, many more people, equal numbers of people, including children, were dying in a million other places in the world. And, and we didn't have this revulsion to it. We knew it. That sucks. It's awful. It's outrageous. And then we we went went about our lives. I but 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 that could be equally wrong. Like you know that that's not to say that we should go about our lives here. Maybe we were remiss in not concerning ourselves with these things all over the world. Maybe that's what we should be ashamed of, right? So you you can play it either way. But I live in Manhattan, and if Queens. If, if in Queens they had rockets and they came into Manhattan and they killed people and they raped people yeah. and they uh, and they slaughtered people and then I was told well, we have to just let them be because there's no way to there's no way to handle it without killing their children that they want you to kill and you have to wait for them to do it again or so you know it's asking it's I don't know if any nation can be asked that I don't know and then of course I don't know enough about military strategy and planning it wouldn't shock me. If certain decisions, uh, let me take that back. I will stipulate, I will guarantee you that if you give me a hundred decisions in retrospect that were made, a certain number of them, I will say after the fact, you know what? You were fucking angry. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. Cause that's, you know, that would be silly to say that that doesn't happen. 
but some number of people were going to die. Some number of people were going to die. I take your point. Yeah. If you let the human shield strategy work, uh, you're, you know, the, we don't negotiate with terrorists kind of uh, rule falls apart and it'll be strategically, strategically manipulated going forward. So you can't let the human shield strategy work, which means you have to kill those people who are being used as human shields in the process of uh, prosecuting the military campaign. And then the blood is on your hands. And then, you know, you got to live with the consequence of the blood on your hands. Maybe that's a better consequence than uh, letting the enemy fester, taking the rockets and whatnot. Maybe, let me not say maybe, I don't know. But it's awfully bloody. It's awfully, awfully bloody. And it follows you forever. And, you know, I, people are upset, uh, the pro-Israel people, about the South African government going into the International Court of Justice with a genocide claim. And I'm not trying to address that, the validity of that claim one way or the other. I'm just saying, you can't be surprised that that kind of thing is going on. No, I, I, I would also criticize, I mean, I, I, this is... There's a tone deafness to some of the pro-Israel voices, in my opinion. Um, and I felt this way, actually, before the worst happened. I, I, I wrote, um, when somebody, they were talking about comparing it to 9-11s. You know, this is so many 9-11s for Israel. I said, well, listen, don't say that, because in a very short time, it's going to be way more 9-11s for the poor Palestinian people, and uh, you're you're about to see um, daily George Floyd videos and a worldwide uh, BLM reaction. That that's what what I predicted, and that that's exactly what we're seeing. Right. And 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 the tone deafness is even now. You see, look at what they did to uh, these people in Israel, and it's true. It, it, it's outrageous what it did, and it, it needs to be known. But look at what's happening to the to the to it to the poor innocent people. I mean, children children, if anybody, are innocent. Their death is unbearable, and this kind of uh, atrocity porn. While it is necessary to point out the atrocities, it is necessary to to, to demonstrate who the enemy is. It it it, it it's you have to. They have to do a better job of, of showing, if it's true, that in their heart, that their hearts do bleed for these innocent people dying. And too often, they don't. Not that the other side does either, but I'm concerned about my side, you know. So, so am I, No, So am yeah. I. Yeah. Okay, well, unless you've got something else, I'll let that be the last word on this, and we'll continue the conversation. I'll keep well, reading. I I, I just want to say that you, you really are a hero of mine for for your unflinching search for truth. I you know whatever you come to uh, on this, I it's okay with me. Don't ever worry about telling me. And I know that you and I can have a a couple of drinks and we can argue about it. And and hope you know um, I don't consider myself. In your league on most things, but on on this oh, on this stop it. no no, but on, on I, I don't think I could do. I, I heard you talk about you know how you when the when when the, the when the substitute when the teacher was out, you were the substitute teacher in your math class as a young boy. Okay, <laughs> I was a smart kid. I wasn't smart like that. But on this issue, uh, I, you know, I, I I'm pretty well informed, and and um and I feel that um uh there's a, there's a connection between us strong enough at this point that it can sustain, or I want to tell you that it can sustain anything you might say or feel. And even if we had an argument, it wouldn't phase me. So, um, you know, if, if I can be your sounding board and, and don't give those Jews who give you a hard time a second thought, okay, Glenn, you, you'll be true to yourself. <laughs> I, I appreciate it, Norm, I really do. I'm, I'm proud to count you as a friend. And But I'll tell you, man, those Jews are knocking at the door. It's very hard to ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, but you know what? F them. I mean, listen, listen to them, listen to their arguments. But, yeah. but yeah, you, I, if I were you, I, I don't like it when somebody 
when somebody tries to use loyalty or emotion or whatever it is as an argument against me, I actually get angry. It's like, you know what? If you have a good argument, make the good argument. If, if you're coming to me with loyalty, it kind of makes me think that you haven't got a good logical argument. Just convince me. You know me, right? You know I'm a logical person. Why do you have to appeal to my loyalty? Buy me a book. <laughs> well said and well done. My guest has been Noam Dorman. He's the owner of the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village and a uh, host of Live from the Table, the podcast, and my friend. Thank you Bye so friend. much, Noam. Thank you, Glenn. Take it easy. All right. <laughs> 